Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. I would ask everyone or remind everyone to silence your cell phones. Um, this is the 17th event in our speaker series, Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Uh, you can watch this event later or any of the previous 16 events by going to heritage.org forward slash free dash markets. Our speaker today is Dr. Ryan Anderson. His topic is conservative social justice. He is the author of, well, first, he's the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in, the, in American Principles and Public Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. He's the author of two books, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, and Truth Over Rule, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's the co-author of two books. What is marriage, man and woman, a defense, and debating, and then also debating religious liberty and discrimination. He's also the co-editor of a further book, A Liberalism Safe for Catholicism, Perspectives from the View of Politics. He is the John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas, an adjunct professor of philosophy and political science at Christendom College, a fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America, and a visiting fellow at the Veritas Center at the Franciscan University. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton University and received his PhD from, in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. His excellent dissertation, which I've read and I hope you make available online soon, uh, is particularly relevant for our talk today, is called Neither Liberal Nor Libertarian, A Natural Law Approach to Social Justice and Economic Rights. Now, the second volume of Friedrich Hayek's Law, Legislation, and Liberty is called The Mirage of Social Justice. In that book, Hayek said that social justice does not belong to the category of error, but to that of nonsense, like the term a moral stone. Our speaker today disagrees, but he also disagrees with the incoherent mess that the left has made of the term social justice. Instead, he offers an older conception of social justice rooted in the natural law tradition. We will have time for audience questions after Ryan's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Ryan Anderson. Great. Thank you. Thank you, David, for uh the kind introduction and for inviting me to speak in this lecture series. Um, this has been a great lecture series that David has organized. So if you haven't been able to attend all 17 of the lectures, um, strongly encourage you to get on YouTube, go to the Heritage Foundation page and watch some of the previous speakers. David's brought a wide array of people from different kind of um, spaces within the center-right coalition, uh, offering different perspectives on why capitalism, free markets, private property is the moral uh, and ethical choice. Uh, as David mentioned, it was five years ago that I successfully defended my dissertation. Uh, five years later, I still haven't published my dissertation, um, but I hope to one day do so. Um, five years ago, I wasn't planning and writing a book about transgender um, anything, uh, and so it's interesting to see what can get in the way of you turning your dissertation into a book, but I do hope to at some point um, publish some of this. So let me uh, give a brief outline of what I hope to do uh, this morning. Um, first, I want to immediately start with um, a history of the phrase social justice, how it was originally coined and used and why, um, because it's not um, what many people think the word means or the phrase means today. 
And then second, I want to turn even further back in time uh, to the thought of Thomas Aquinas and how Aquinas uh, thought about the morality of property, um, what justified the ownership of private property, but what also what limited the ownership of private property. Uh, then I'm going to say a few words about what any of this means for government. Uh, the first two parts of the talk uh, won't really mention uh, government or the state or political authority uh, much at all. Uh, then fourth, I want to kind of put some of this together into what I'll outline as six institutions of social justice. And then fifth and finally, if we have time, I'll give an example or two of how this might play out. Uh, and the examples will largely be drawn um, uh, from the dissertation and from the title, neither liberal nor libertarian. You know, I'll give you some examples that will show how to avoid uh, the mistakes on both the far left and uh, the far right, um, neither liberal nor libertarian. What's a conservative alternative? Okay, so that's the general outline. Uh, let me start with a little history about the phrase social justice. Many people think that it's an invention of mid-20th century progressive thinkers, uh, thinkers who wanted to defend the New Deal, wanted to defend the great society, the welfare state, and they started saying that social justice requires and then fill in the blank with big government a welfare program. That actually starts uh, the history of the phrase social justice in midstream. Uh, the first use of the phrase social justice that historians know of uh, takes place in 1840, uh, so a solid 100 years before uh, the New Deal and the Great Society and the explosion of the welfare state. And it's used by a um, Jesuit priest, uh, a Thomist, uh, so a disciple, intellectual disciple of Thomas Aquinas, uh, Luigi Tapparelli. Uh, and Tapparelli writes a multi-volume work between 1840 and 1843, titled A Theoretical Treatise on Natural Law Resting on Fact. And it's that last clause, resting on fact, that is really uh, decisive for Tapparelli. Uh, Tapparelli is criticizing what he sees as uh, the mistaken myths of state of nature theorists and social contract theorists. Uh, we need not um, uh, evaluate whether or not Tapparelli's critique of people like Locke and Rousseau is accurate or not. I think in certain respects it is accurate. In other respects, I think it's inaccurate. Um, so we need not adjudicate uh, the merits of social contractarian thought, state of nature thought. But what I do want to highlight is something about the anthropology that Tapparelli is getting at. Tapparelli is getting at a philosophical anthropology that he thinks the state of nature theorists uh, get wrong. And so the first thing to say is that why use the phrase social justice when he does is that Tapparelli wants to defend the idea of society uh, and that we are a society of societies uh, in the plural, uh, that man is by nature a social animal, and that means our uh, nature um, inclines us to be members of multiple societies. Why would Tapparelli be needing to defend this at this moment in time? Um, let me just give you a couple of dates and a couple of events and books uh, that were being published at the time. So Tapparelli is writing in 1840. Uh, in 1789, you have the French Revolution, uh, which saw the French uh, government dissolving monasteries and convents and taking land from uh, the Catholic Church and other non-governmental institutions. In 1859, uh, so just uh, 15 years after Tapparelli's finished publishing uh, his work, J.S. Mill will publish On Liberty. And in 1867, just a, another decade after that, um, uh, Karl Marx will publish Das Kapital. Uh, and so obviously, while those books haven't yet been published when Tapparelli's writing, the ideas are already in the intellectual atmosphere. Uh, it's not as if J.S. Mill and Karl Marx invented collectivism and individualism out of whole cloth, right? What they did was they developed certain intellectual currents, and Tapparelli wanted to say no to both of those currents. Uh, so it's very similar to my mind uh, to someone like Yuval Levin today, uh, saying that we have these two options of radical individualism on one side and radical collectivism on the other side, and both of these things get it wrong. And so I think if you've read um, Yuval's book, The Fractured Republic, you'll see he goes through this analysis, and it's almost like a ping-pong ball in which radical individualism leads to big government response and radical collectivism, and then the big government response further leads to more individualism, which then further leads to more government, and it hollows out the middle. It hollows out civil society. It hollows out um, all of the societies to which we ought to be members. And so that's one of the things 
that Tapparelli is trying to uh, emphasize. Uh, Russ Hittinger, a, uh, uh, um, a contemporary uh, philosopher living now, teaching now, writing now, um, he's analyzed some of Tapparelli's thought, and he says that one of the things he's responding to is a Habesian notion of a concession theory or devolution theory of authority in which all of the authority exists in the sovereign, um, the Leviathan, and anything else that exists exists as a result of a concession from the Leviathan. And Tapparelli wants to say, no, that's a faulty theory of uh, society. That by nature, societies other than the state exists. And this actually places limits on the state. Right? So it's almost a 180 degree difference from the way that you hear social justice used today, in which you know the state is supposed to directly do X, Y, and Z if there's a certain uh, request being made. In the name of social justice, we need government-run health care or government-run nutrition or whatever. Uh, Tapparelli is actually saying, no, in the name of social justice, there are real societies that exist, not from a grant from the state, not from a concession of the state. And these real societies with their real existence place limits on the state. They actually cabin in the state. Uh, they place duties on how the state interacts with these societies, whether they be religious societies or familial societies, um, charitable societies, for-profit societies, business societies. These things have real existence and government needs to situate itself correctly with respect to these uh, societies. So true to we as people. Um, so uh, the next thing that I want to say about this is not just the word social, but the word justice. Uh, Tapparelli wants to remind people that we have duties to the societies of which we are members. Uh, especially in the United States, our political rhetoric emphasizes rights. Right, Lots of rights talk, to borrow the title of one of Marianne Glendon's uh, books. We don't have much duty talk in the United States. Uh, Tepperelli says these things have to go hand in hand. Rights and duties are two sides of the same coin. Uh, and so what does this mean in terms of what we owe to our neighbors? What do we owe to the communities of which we are members, the societies, uh, to use the social justice talk, um, whether that be our family, whether that be our church, our synagogue, our mosque, our school, our business as an employee or as an employer, um, that these, we don't just want to analyze these social relationships in terms of rights. We also want to think in terms of duties. Where duty is a virtue or justice is a virtue uh, that is perfective of people. So for an Aristotelian or Thomistic uh, conception, um, justice isn't primarily about government. Justice is first and foremost a, a personal virtue. It's one of the cardinal virtues, and therefore it is perfective of the agent. Uh, justice perfects each and every one of us when we make just choices, when we act in ways that are just. What is uh, justice in its most kind of robust sense all about? Uh, it's the virtue that directs us towards respecting what we owe to other people and other institutions. Uh, it's about duty. It's about what's due to others, um, what they deserve. Uh, it's supposed to orient our will uh, towards the common good. Uh, so in the broadest sense, the virtue of justice is about orienting all of our uh, actions, uh, not just towards our own private good, but towards the common good of all of the communities that we are members of. Right? There's no such thing as the common good in the singular. There are many common goods. There's a common good of the institution known as the Heritage Foundation. There's a common good uh, known as the Anderson family. There's a common good of St. John the Apostle Parish. Right? I have to act in ways that are in keeping with promoting the common good of all three of those societies of which I'm a member. Um, and then these common goods can be kind of um, stacked. Right? You could think of... Uh, more, smaller and then larger and larger than diagrams in which certain common goods exist inside of other common goods. And therefore, um, those larger entities have certain duties with respect to uh, smaller entities, not to usurp their rightful authority. Right? So you could violate social justice by one of these larger institutions usurping the rightful authority and prerogative of a smaller institution. Um, I'll say more about that in a minute. All right, one last comment. Um, I mentioned why social, why justice. I want to say one other thing about why social. 
The historians and the philosophers who have looked into Taparelli's writing have said that, by and large, they think that what he's using the word social justice to stand in for is the much older Aristotelian and Thomistic concept of legal justice or general justice, all around a virtue with respect to other people. If you're familiar at all with the uh, Aristotelian Thomistic schema on how to think about justice, legal justice or general justice is uh, the genus. It's kind of the umbrella term, of which there are then two particular forms of justice. Uh, commutative justice, the justice of exchange or the justice between individuals, the justice in kind of uh, one-off interactions, and then distributive justice, uh, the justice of how you distribute uh, public goods, public benefits, public burdens, um, how you distribute honors, titles, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that it seems Tepparelli was concerned is that people were thinking of legal justice, this general form of all-around virtue, in a very legalistic uh, sense. Uh, if you think also what's going on in the mid-1800s, you have the rise of legal positivism. Uh, and so it was being conflated to, if I follow the law, understood as uh, the law that Washington, D.C., or the state of Virginia, or the United States of America lays down, I have fulfilled all of my duties in justice. That's not the original Thomistic conception, because legal justice would have corresponded to the natural law not the positive law. Merely uh, not breaking the law, merely obeying man-made law, uh, wouldn't equal all-around virtue with respect to other people. Right? That's not what uh, Aquinas was getting at. That's not what Aristotle was getting at. And that's not what Taparelli is getting at. So he wants to uh, have um, uh, general justice, legal justice, now social justice, be a stand-in for what do we owe to not just in this case following the law, but to the societies of which uh, we are parts. What this, or we are members, what this also highlights um, is that social justice isn't just about the government redistributing stuff. Before we even get to considerations of the state or of political authority, we each as individuals need to think, what duties do I have both in commutative justice and distributive justice uh, with respect to my neighbors? What obligations do I have to family members, to friends, to neighbors, to uh, parishioners, um, to co-workers, to employees, to employers, right? All of these considerations of justice are going to play in before you even get to considerations of government, right? all in a natural understanding of justice. Okay, so that's enough about Taparelli for this moment. Let me um, pivot to Aquinas. And I want to say a couple of things about Aquinas' account of property. Uh, because if you're at all familiar, you know that Thomas uh, thinks the private ownership of property is justified, right? So he doesn't think anyone is um, necessarily committing mortal sin by owning private property. But he thinks you could sin in how you deploy and harness and steward your private property. And so he thinks there are going to be both property rights and property duties, and that latter phrase, property duties, is largely uh, foreign to the American experience. And so I want to say four things about uh, Thomas's account here, uh, how, how he thinks about this. First, that there's an intrinsic relationship between property and human flourishing, between property and the common good, between property uh, and human goods. Uh, second, that privatizing property actually provides an order a series of incentives, a way of um, structuring property relations uh, so that human beings best flourish. And so there's something both uh, intrinsic, the first part of what I'll say, and then there's something instrumental, the second part. Third, for Thomas, is that if these aspects of human flourishing and of the, the common good are what justify the ownership of private property, it's also what places moral limits on the ownership of private property. And then fourth, I'll um, uh, expand on Thomas's account to say that something like a free market system, something like a market-based, private property-based system, actually best allows human beings to fulfill their duties to others and exercise their rights in a morally responsible way. And then I'm going to pivot and say something about government, but that's the next major subheading. So let me stick with this. All right, first... This almost might seem too pedestrian 
to emphasize, but I think it actually is worth emphasizing. Um, if property is going to help human beings to flourish at all, at some point it needs to be privatized. So even the most uh, collectivist, socialist, anti-private property person you could meet, at a certain point has to embrace uh, at least the private use of property. Uh, if this bottle of water is going to hydrate anyone, at a certain point, one of us is going to have to privatize it in a very radical way. Right? If I drink this water, none of you are drinking this water. But if this water stays in the commons, right? It just this is collective property or common ownership of this water, and it never gets privatized, at least in use, then it benefits no one. And you can go through a whole host of uh, human goods, of ways in which we flourish, and see that we need property to do so. Um, all of you are clothed, and I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for dressing today. If you're wearing your suit and tie, your dress, your skirt, whatever, that means someone else isn't uh, wearing that, right? So if clothing is going to fulfill its social role of kind of um, concealing the body, uh, play its physical role of providing warmth during the winter, et cetera, et cetera, uh, at least at the moment of usage, uh, we're going to have to privatize uh, property. Um, many of you probably over the weekend spent time uh, with friends. Maybe you hosted a dinner party. Well, to do certain things like that, you're going to have to have certain property uh, to make this function. Right? So if we couldn't reserve this auditorium at this hour on this day, none of us would be participating in the good of knowledge, right? thinking about what's the truth about social justice. If you didn't have access to um, the restaurant that you reserved for uh, the dinner party or, or your living room, your dining room for the dinner party that you threw at home or in your apartment, goods of friendships, a good good of sociality, goods of community wouldn't have actually been able to take place. Um, if when I go upstairs to my office, I don't have access to a computer that I can exclude others from using, I can kick my intern out of my office, get him off my keyboard and actually get to work, I'm not going to flourish in my professional of vocation. So a variety of ways uh, in which you could see that we need material stuff to help us actually flourish, right? It's almost too pedestrian to note, but it's actually critically important to see that human nature requires the use of physical materials that we then transform, right? Almost everything that I just mentioned, uh, maybe with the exception of the water, um, wasn't just like a raw material from the earth, but it was a raw material mixed with human ingenuity, mixed with human creativity to produce something that actually allows us uh, to flourish. So there's an intrinsic relationship at the moment of use. Right, so now the second part, it's not just at the moment of use, but it's also in the ownership and stewardship of these resources. Um, imagine if whatever clothes you are currently wearing were the communal property of everyone who lives in your building. Right? So everyone who lives in, whether you're in like an apartment building or a condominium, or um, maybe if you live alone in a standalone house, this isn't that um, bad of a thought experiment. But imagine that you live in a large, and you're all just going to have uh, common ownership of your suit and tie or of your dress. Who's going to wash it? Who's going to actually care about the upkeep? You'll see very quickly um, that the clothing that you're wearing wouldn't actually be all that attractive in a week or a month or a year. Whereas if you own it and you have certain obligations to care for it and you know that if you uh, don't launder it well, if you don't take care of when you're eating, not to get food all over your shirt, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's not going to be very worthwhile to you or to anyone else. You're going to take better care of it. Uh, this is the same basic idea of how many of you have ever taken your rental car to the car wash? You just don't take as good care of things that you're borrowing or renting as you do as what you own. Here's how Thomas explains it, why a private property is fitting. He says, first, because every man is more careful to procure what is for himself alone than that which is common to many or to all, since each one would shirk the labor and leave to another that which concerns the community, as happens when there is a great number of servants. Secondly, because human affairs are conducted in more orderly fashion, if each man is charged with taking care of some particular thing himself, whereas there would be confusion if everyone had to look after any one thing indeterminately. Thirdly, because a more peaceful state is ensured to man if each one is contented with his own, 
Hence, it is to be observed that quarrels arise more frequently where there is no division of the things possessed. So what Thomas is making here is uh, an empirical observation about human nature in that private property actually allows for a more peaceful, orderly uh, way of relating to the material stuff that we need to flourish. Um, If we didn't get to say that this auditorium was for the Heritage Foundation and David Burton had it reserved at 11 o'clock today, and people just showed up here whenever they wanted to give a talk and audience members would just sit, you could see how disorderly this would go. No one would actually benefit from uh, knowledge and from learning the exchange of ideas. Um, if the restaurant that you had the reservation, um, could just, anyone could just walk in, um, you wouldn't have the series of incentives, the series of, uh, of order that would go there. Some people speculate that uh, some of the um, examples that Thomas uses in that quote is from his own experience of being a Dominican monk. Right? When he says, you know, when you have lots of servants, no one with a particular assignment, everyone kind of shirks the work. Right? If everyone's responsible for cleaning all the toilets, you're probably not going to volunteer to clean as many as you would if you're assigned to clean this one and that guy's assigned to clean that one and that guy's assigned to clean the third one. There's actually a way in which um, this benefits uh, human flourishing. Okay. So then the third part of Thomas's analysis is that if it's um, this analysis of how property, both in its use and in its ownership, allows human beings to flourish in community, that's also what therefore places uh, limits to how we then exercise that ownership of property. Uh, Thomas says, quote, man ought to possess external things, not as his own, but as common, so that he is ready to communicate them to others in their need. And here Aquinas is just echoing Aristotle. Aristotle taught that, quote, property ought to be common in a sense, but private speaking generally. So what both of them are getting at here is that we should own our private property. It's properly our own, um, but we should own it with an eye towards how we can benefit the community, not just how it can benefit us individually or singularly. So there's a proper relationship between me and my property. That's what makes it uh, properly mine. Um, But my outlook should be how can I utilize this precisely to advance the common good of the various communities of which I'm a member? Because it's not just for my uh, personal benefit. Aquinas discusses this both in his treatise on almsgiving, which is within his treatise on charity, which leads some people to say, oh, well, this is just optional. Um, uh, the virtue of charity, virtue of almsgiving means that it's kind of like supererogatory. It, it's it's, it's um, above and beyond. He also discusses this in his treatise on justice. Um, and he says basically the same thing. Um, so I'm going to read you both quotes, and then I'm going to um, comment on it. All right, so this comes in his uh, treatise on almsgiving, and he quotes uh, St. Basil at the end. He says, the temporal goods which God grants us are ours as to the ownership, Um, but as to the use of them, they belong not to us alone, but also as to such others as we are able to succor out of what we have over and above our needs. Hence, Basil says, It is the hungry man's bread that you withhold, the naked man's cloak that you have stored away, the shoe of the barefoot that you have left to rot, the money of the needy that you have buried underground. And so you injure as many as you might help, but do not. Ambrose expresses himself in the same way. So that's in the treatise on charity. In the treatise on justice, this time he quotes Ambrose. So this is what he says in the treatise on justice. And this is within his um, articles considering the justice of private property. Thomas writes, things which are of human right cannot derogate from natural right or divine right. Now, according to the natural order established by divine providence, inferior things are ordained for the purpose of succoring man's needs by their means. Wherefore, the division and appropriation of things which are based on human law do not preclude the fact that man's needs have to be remedied by means of these very things. Hence, whatever certain people have in superabundance is due by natural law to the purpose of succoring the poor. For this reason, Ambrose says, and his words are embodied in the Decretals, it is the hungry man's bread that you withhold, the naked man's cloak that you store away, the money that you bury in the earth is the price of the poor man's ransom and freedom. Okay, so think about what Thomas is saying here. Um, He's saying that part of uh, the natural law and the divine law, so part of the 
the nature of reality, created reality, so something that we can know both through um, our reason participating in um, God's creative reason and what we can know through revelation, is that interior, uh, inferior things, uh, material things, are meant to um, uh, benefit uh, uh, higher things, meant to benefit, in this case, rational animals, right? So all of the non-rational uh, stuff that we see, whether it be physical matter or non-rational animals, they're meant for the benefit of uh, rational creatures. Um, and it's appropriate for man to have ownership of those uh, subhuman entities. It's fine to own animals. You can own, we own 15 chickens uh, you can own um, cows, pigs, whatever. You can also own computers, uh, scooters, if you're David Azarad, cars, etc., etc. And all of these inferior things are meant to benefit uh, humanity. And as a result, Thomas says, if you have more than you need uh, for your own benefit, what you have in the phrase he uses is superabundance, the Latin is superflua, you owe as a matter of justice to other people. I'm going to hit the pause button there because that doesn't yet translate into big government welfare program, right? The way that some people will immediately use this moral duty that we have to say that, you know, there ought to be a law. Um, because I want to, before turning to that, say a little bit more about how to think about this because this also isn't um, the way that some kind of utilitarians would say, you know, you have to reduce yourself to bare existence and then give everything else away. Uh, not quite what Thomas is getting at. So let me read you another quote. Thomas writes, a thing is necessary in two ways. First, because without it, something is impossible. And it is altogether wrong to give alms out of what is necessary to us in this sense. For instance, if a man found himself in the presence of a case of urgency and had merely sufficient to support himself and his children or others under his charge, he would be throwing away his life and that of others if he were to give away in alms what was necessary to him or them. So this first thing is, what do we actually need um, for kind of like bare survival. And we have a strict right to our ownership of all of those things. And then he says, secondly, a thing is said to be necessary if a man cannot without it live in keeping with his social station as regards either himself or those of whom he has charged. The necessary considered thus is not an invariable quantity for one might add much uh, more to one's property and not yet go beyond. So he's trying to say, look, it's not going to be a br- a bright line. It's going to be a matter of a little bit more, a little bit less. There's a range. And then he says, um, it would be inordinate to deprive oneself of one's own in order to give to others to such an extent that the residue would be insufficient for one to live in keeping with one's station in the ordinary occurrences of life, for no man ought to live unbecomingly. So he says, all right, beyond bare necessities, um, you also have a certain vocation in life, right? the station in life that God has called you to. And you need certain physical resources, certain possessions, private property to fulfill that vocation. Uh, for me, I need an iPad and a laptop because I do intellectual work and I spend lots of times on trains, planes, automobiles. It's how I get work done. Um, if you were a professional farmer, you would need various like tractors and farm implements and cattle and things like this. And that would be fitting for your vocation. If you're a professional violinist, you need a Stradivarius in a way that if you're just a hobbyist, you can probably just get by with the normal violin, right? There are going to be different um, fittingness of material resources to what your vocation is. So there's type one goods, absolutely necessary. Type two goods, what's fitting for your vocation. And then these type three, super abundant, superflua goods, which Thomas says that you have a duty in justice to use to benefit other people. If you don't need this to benefit yourself, you should be using these things to help other people meet their own needs in life. And this can be done in a variety of ways. So let me now, uh, the fourth part of this uh, subheading is that market economies actually are remarkably good at allowing people to meet their basic needs and necessities. Um, you look at um, some of the historical charts that show how many people have lived in poverty uh, throughout human history. And then all of a sudden you see that number going way, way down and the number going up for people who are actually having all of their basic needs met uh, with kind of the industrial revolution with global capital markets, with private property and regimes that respect the rights of property owners. It's one thing just to say you have ownership. It's another thing to actually have a legally uh, enforceable claim to ownership. So things like the rule of law, things like 
uh, um, trade of markets, et cetera, et cetera, um, actually correspond with vast, vast, vast numbers of people who throughout human history were living in uh, destitute poverty, actually now having all of their type 1 needs met and increasingly all of their type 2 needs met. Um, and in addition, it allows people with type 3 goods to use those goods to reinvest in either economically productive industries. Right? So you can be an entrepreneur who helps people meet their type 1 and type 2 needs by using your excess wealth to reinvest into your business to have more employment for people and to provide more goods and services at better prices. Uh, and um, I think we probably all know people who have done that sort of work. Or you can use your type three goods to then donate to various charitable institutions that are directly trying to do some of that work. Uh, and many of you who work at 501c3 organizations rely upon people with those sorts of material resources to voluntarily uh, redistribute those resources through their charitable giving. Uh, hopefully all of you are involved in that sort of charitable giving at the capacity to which you have uh, the ability. Right? And so what's remarkable here is that a system of, of freedom actually allows for people, uh, based upon human experience so far, to best meet these sorts of needs. Right? Uh, we don't know of any other economic system that produces these sorts of outcomes. That's not to say that it's a perfect economic system. There won't be any perfect economic system short of the eschaton. That's not to say that there's nothing wrong with it. We, I don't think we need to engage in any hyperbolic um, defenses uh, to say that based upon human nature as it is, uh, this is the best system that man has uh, devised. Uh, it meets people's needs, and it allows people to utilize their um, excess uh, resources in keeping with their own convictions. And so a nice thing here is that it's not just going to be the government will confiscate all of your um, excess wealth and then redistribute it according to the government's values. This actually allows you to exercise your own stewardship of your excess uh, wealth in deciding how you want to uh, benefit people. Right? And so in this country, we have deep moral disagreements about lots of important issues uh, and so some people are going to give to the Heritage Foundation, and some people are going to give to the Center for American Progress. Some people are going to give to the Little Sisters of the Poor, and some people are going to give, um, I don't even know what the functional equivalent of, the, there aren't like secular nuns out there. So I don't know what the functional equivalent of Little Sisters of the Poor, but you can see how this actually allows um, uh, what John Tomasi calls self-authorship. And Tomasi was one of the speakers that David had speaking at Heritage as part of this lecture series. It's not just the Lockean notion of self-ownership where we own ourselves. Uh, what Tomasi wants to emphasize is that we author ourselves. We author our lives through our actions, um, both our economically productive actions, right? So there's no reason to think that only charities should have certain uh, liberties. What many of us do from nine to five uh, is how we're authoring our lives. And that's an important part. And then what we do with our charitable giving is how we author our lives. What we do with our volunteer time, this is all goes into self-authorship, uh, which is why freedom would be important. All right, let me move on to um, the next big heading, which is what does any of this mean for government? Because if you notice, we're now 40 minutes into the lecture and I haven't said a thing about government. Before we even get to the state, we need to first have a sound understanding of the philosophical anthropology, um, of the moral theory that's being presented here. Um, and the first thing that I want to say about the state's role in this is that it sets up the conditions, it protects the conditions that makes any of this possible. The government is not the protagonist in this story. Uh, the government is kind of like the background um, set. And if you go to a play, it's nice to have a nice set. The people who do the set design are important, but they're not the main stars of the show. Right? They're not the protagonists. Uh, on this understanding, it's important that you have a state that protects basic human rights, that protects the rule of law, that will vindicate contracts, that will prosecute when there's fraud or deception or force. Uh, and that's going to be the primary role uh, of the state on this conception. Uh, the primary role of the state is protecting the conditions that allows people uh, to voluntarily contract with each other, to have gainful employment, to make the wealth that allows us to meet our type 1 and type 2 needs, that allows us to uh, charitably redistribute our type 3 uh, superfluous, superabundant goods, et cetera, et cetera. Right? The state's going to be primarily involved in all of that. And that's not nothing. That's not something to laugh at. 
Uh, that, that is something that we should be very grateful for because when you look both throughout human history and across the globe today, it's the minority of people uh, who can say that they live in a jurisdiction where those basic human rights and rule of law will actually be vindicated by the government. Uh, lots of people, uh, both today and throughout human history, would rather be in a place like this uh, where they're secure in certain rights and they're secure in their person and in their possessions. Um, and that's a significant achievement, right? And we shouldn't be uh, too quick to kind of discard it. But, and here's where the neither libertarian part of uh, the title of the dissertation comes in, this doesn't mean that the state doesn't have a secondary role. Right? So there's a primary role. There's also a secondary uh, role. Um, and that is where, when there is market failure, when there is, um, uh, you could even say, civil society failure, it's not a priori inappropriate for the state to try to do what it can do uh, to assist uh, in human flourishing. Uh, and I want to say three things um, about that. First is that if the state is going to be doing anything to directly uh, assist or promote human flourishing, it actually needs to be um, ordered towards real human goods, uh, real ends of our nature. Um, in the dissertation, I criticize uh, actually the same political theorist that Senator Josh Hawley uh, uh, critiqued last week at the uh, big uh, conference here in D.C., Martha Nussbaum. Uh, and Martha Nussbaum, Professor Nussbaum, has a theory of social justice that she calls the human capabilities approach, where she says what we should care about are the capabilities that humans have, not the functioning. And then she goes on to say there's a world of difference between a health capability and a health functioning, because one respects lifestyle choices and the other doesn't. Uh, and this is a euphemism for things like abortion. Uh, we should uh, focus on sexual capabilities rather than sexual functioning or sexual flourishing, meaning we should uh, focus on people being able to have consequence-free um, autonomous sex rather than focusing on the good of marriage and family. If we do have duties to other people, it is to their actual authentic good. And if the state is going to be doing anything to promote human flourishing, it has to actually get what human flourishing is correct. Right? So it's not just saying like kind of like morally neutral capabilities, um, educational capabilities. It actually needs to be concerned with the good of the truth and of knowledge, uh, not just healthcare capabilities, but actually the good of human health, um, not just sexual capabilities, but the good of marriage and the family. Right? So the first is that what are the ends that you're seeking? Uh, second is that what are the means that you're deploying? Uh, the state can't deploy means that violate justice in the name of social justice. So you can't usurp the role of parents in the education of their children in the name of social justice. Uh, you can't shut down the little sisters of the poor in the name of social justice uh, when you're trying to provide um, health uh, to citizens. There are a variety of ways in which you could choose unjust means even to good ends. And so both the ends in sight have to be good, the means in sight have to be good. And then third, you have to avoid... Um, uh, in economic jargon talk, externalities. In moral philosophy talk, unintended but foreseen uh, side effects. Uh, you want to avoid perverse incentives. Uh, and if you look at our welfare state, we have a whole host of ways, uh, so much so that people refer to them as welfare traps, uh, in which the state has a policy that it's uh, aimed, and let's say it's even it's aimed at something good. They're trying to do it in a way that doesn't usurp civil society, et cetera, et cetera, but it has all sorts of perverse incentives. So in the name of social justice, you can't just justify anything. Right? It actually needs to be at an intelligible good. It needs to respect um, the subjectivity of society, not usurping the various roles, various institutions of social society, and it can't provide perverse incentives. Um, what this should look like in the concrete, I mean, that's a question for policymakers. I have a whole a host of colleagues here who are thinking through this stuff on a daily basis. Um, so let me Wrap up with two things. I, I want to give you six institutions, and then I want to give you an example. The example will come uh, from the context of education. So six institutions. First institution of social justice, um, the state in its primary function, protecting human rights and the rule of law, um, making us secure in our person and in our possessions, uh, setting up a system of justice, adjudicating a system of justice fairly, um, that's an institution of social justice that we should be grateful for. Second is the market itself, uh, the knowledge that markets provide through the price signal, 
um, uh, the ability to exchange goods and services, uh, the ability um, to exchange labor uh, for a profit, the ability to uh, be able to contract with each other. A well-functioning market is an institution of social justice, an institution that has lifted more people out of poverty and allowed more people to lead dignified, flourishing lives um, than anything else that we've attempted. A third, marriage in the family is an institution of social justice. Um, intrinsically, because of the goods that are um, realized inside of marriage in the family, the good of marital love between spouses, the good of uh, um, generativity, the creation of the next generation, uniting the next generation uh, with his or her mother and father, uh, and then all the benefits that this brings instrumentally, right? So there's those intrinsic goods of family relationships, but then instrumental goods in terms of Robert Rector uh, likes to point out that um, your chances of um, experiencing poverty in the United States are less than 4% if you were born into and raised by your married mother and father until age 18. That the best Department of Health, Education, and Welfare is the family. So they're both intrinsic goods to marriage and the family and these instrumental goods. And so it's a violation of social justice if the state tries to usurp the family, if the state tries to take the authority away from parents to directly educate kids and to indoctrinate them according to the state's ideology. It's a violation of social justice if the state tries to redefine what marriage and the family is. This is part of Taparelli's argument that these societies are pre-political. They have real existence that the government doesn't create but the government has a duty to respect and to honor, uh, to protect and to promote, but never to attack or to in any way diminish. All right, fourth institution would be educational institutions um, for obvious reasons. First, there's some intrinsic goods going on here. Knowledge is one of those things that makes us flourish. We need to be educated to a certain extent to kind of fully realize our rational nature. Knowledge is something that's intrinsically good, but then also instrumentally. Um, Solid education is what allows us to flourish in a market society. Uh, people without basic uh, educational achievements, literacy, basic math, basic things that you would learn at school, have a very hard time flourishing in a market society. And so we do them an injustice when they aren't adequately prepared for uh, life as an adult in our society. And so education's both intrinsic and uh, instrumental. A fifth would be religious and other charitable institutions, uh, the intrinsic goods being realized there, friendship with God, a pretty important intrinsic good. But then also the instrumental goods, if you want to um, think about what institutions actually turn around lives um, when they have uh, fallen on tough times, it's not frequently government-run institutions. Government-run charities, government-run shelters, government-run soup kitchens, they don't work uh, the kind of natural miracles that frequently the faith-based soup kitchens, homeless shelters, drug addiction rehab programs uh, can do because people need ministering not just to the material needs but to holistic needs. And these faith-based charities can minister to the entire person in a way that a government bureaucrat, government agency can't. So then the sixth institution would be the state again, but now in its secondary function, uh, in, in its kind of welfare uh, function. And whether this be... Uh, by providing grants to some of the previous institutions that I've mentioned, um, faith-based charities that receive a government grant, a, uh, a, a school that receives a voucher, et cetera, et cetera, or in some direct form of aid. But again, you need to see, is it actually ordered towards a real human good? Is it deploying means that don't violate justice? And is it providing perverse incentives, yes or no? And when you think through those things pretty rigorously, there are actually rather uh, rigorous standards for what sort of uh, government assistance would actually be justified. So let me illustrate this with one example, um, education. If you were a strict philosophical libertarian, uh, which it's worth noting that not even Milton Friedman was, because he's going to be uh, he is the kind of intellectual grandfather of the idea I'm going to discuss here. But if you were a strict philosophical libertarian where, where any taxation to benefit someone other than yourself is theft, you would have to say the appropriate government policy with respect to education uh, would simply be free markets and education supplemented by, what, by whatever private charity happens to exist. Right? And that would be the philosophically pure libertarian position. Um, free markets and education – 
Um, if poor people can't afford to educate their kids, hope, hopefully there's a charity, there's a, a, a scholarship program out there to help those kids. The liberal response is, oh, no, 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 no. Educational capacities are really important. Uh, and so we need government-run schools, right? The state has to directly educate uh, the nation's children because education matters. Education is important. A conservative alternative are things like what Milton Friedman uh, first proposed 50-some years ago with voucher programs, education savings accounts, special um, tax treatment for dollars that you earn that you will then use um, to educate, to pay for the education of your kids. Um, various ways in which the state can empower parents to fulfill their duty to educate their kids. Um, the idea here would be that if wealthy parents can afford to directly fulfill their duties to their children when it comes to their education, whether they're sending them to uh, a, a private school or a parochial school or homeschooling or educational co-op, whatever it is, um, can we find a way of providing financial assistance uh, to parents with less financial resources so they can engage in the very same thing, right? So it's neither liberal, big government welfare program where the state kind of controls the education of your child and you're cut out of the picture, nor is it libertarian, which it's purely a free market education and we hope there's enough private charity to pick up the pieces. Uh, it does identify the education of young people as a real human good that does need to be fulfilled. And it says there's a limited a role that the state could play when necessary in empowering parents to then fulfill their primary role, which is the primary educator um, and uh, provider to their children, right? So it's not usurping parents. It's not undermining the institution of the family. It's actually uh, respecting the society known as the family. Right? All right. So with that, I'm going to stop. We have some time uh, for questions, possibly answers. The floor is open. And please wait, we're going to bring you a microphone during the Q&A. Be sure to state your name. Um, be sure your question is short and that it ends with a question mark. Someone has to break. Yes, right here. Hi, um, Chelsea Mikta. Um, I guess one question was how would you describe the like left liberal conception of social justice? Um, and a second question would be how... Um, are the institutions you called institutions of social justice different from, like, um, you know, common good promoting institutions? Mm -hmm. Yes, great questions. So depending on how left liberal you have in mind, um, some could say that you want strict egalitarianism, right? So, so one possible position on um, a left liberal uh, would be as much as possible uh, we should aim for um, equality understood not as equality before the law, not understood as equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. Uh, and this is one of the conceptions that Hayek was uh, critiquing in the mirage of social justice. I think Hayek's critique is very accurate as a critique of like mid-20th century uh, thinkers using the label social justice. I don't actually think his critique um, lands a punch at all on what Taparelli was talking about because, I mean, Taparelli's conception was so different than what was going under the label of social justice that Hayek was critiquing. So that, that could be one possible. Is, you know, you, you'd be aiming for strict egalitarianism. Uh, another would be the Rawlsian conception, which is like a maximin. Um, you should structure economic relationships um, such that um, they provide the best benefit to the least well-off. Um, and so Rawls wasn't um, inherently um, critical of markets. He thought that if it were the case that a market society produced the best outcome for um, the poor, then that's actually what uh, justice would require. Um, you could have a Nussbaum conception in which she, she identifies 10 different capabilities, uh, and she says that society as a whole, uh, including global society, global citizens, have a duty to place every global citizen above a certain threshold on these 10 capabilities. So it's not strict egalitarianism, but there's a certain floor that everyone needs to be placed above in 10 different dimensions uh, for Nussbaum. And then what was your second question? I already, oh, oh, how would this be different? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's just um, uh, labeling. Uh, I think what I've articulated here would be very compatible with someone who might call themselves a common good conservative, right? So if you don't want to use the word social justice, and there are, I think, valid debates about this, has the term been so corrupted by progressives that we would just be better not using it? 
or do we want to provide an alternative understanding and, and actually, to my mind, a more historically accurate uh, understanding of what that phrase means? Um, but all of this is coming out of an Aristotelian kind of Thomistic natural law approach to thinking about society, including civil society, thinking about markets, uh, property. And so whether you use like these are common good institutions or social justice institutions or just institutions of civil society, um, I think we're probably all getting at the same thing there. Yep. Uh, first, uh, with the hand up, and then to your left. So, um, my name's Chris. Um, you talked a little bit about the difference between these three types of goods, and it seemed, you know, you said that there's no bright line that delineates exactly when you have crossed the line into type three goods. Um, and so, I'm assuming, obviously, it's the person, the individual's role in their own yes. sphere to sort of make the decision about when that happens. Is there ever um, a possibility of a society at large, each individual being, I guess, so evil that they would just never choose to acknowledge that? And if that were to happen, would the government have a role in delineating that line? I guess that's kind of a hypothetical. Sure. I mean, I, I think the government's going to have um, a hard time precisely de delineating these lines. Um, I think the closest thing that we have to that in the U.S. and many uh, Western nations is something like progressive income tax, um, progressive taxation in general, saying, all right, we're going to try to um, think in the abstract on average, you know, how much material resources in terms of like income um, do you need for like basic goods? And maybe, maybe you're going to say the first X number of dollars is utterly tax-free. And then the next X number of dollars is taxed at this rate. And the next X number of dollars is taxed at a slightly higher rate. Um, whether or not that's good, like economic policy, um, you know, if that has certain market distortions that you would actually have a better taxation system if you had a flat tax, if you had, you know, whatever, right? I'm going to leave it to the tax guys, the economists, thing like that. But just as a, you know, does something like that, could it map onto the type of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I think you could try to say that, um, you know, we could tax a higher rate of higher uh, levels of earning as a way of trying to map onto uh, this sort of a system. Whether or not that actually is going to be wise, whether or not that's actually going to be prudent, it might have all sorts of economic consequences, right? And, and this is why you need in any sort of policymaking area, you need both like the sound philosophy, but also then the, the actual expertise, whether it's education policy, healthcare policy, tax policy, um, because you can't move immediately from morality to policy. Morality is – uh, policy is always going to be influenced by morality. There's no such thing as like morally neutral policy, right? Every piece of law is embodying some moral vision. But you need both like the technical expertise and the proper moral uh, convictions to arrive at the proper policy solution. Yeah, right next door and then we'll come to the front. Um, so on this view, how should conservatives be thinking about like uh, – you mentioned common good conservatives, so this debate, corporate dominance basically in, so, in uh, politics, culture, law, and should the government be doing anything about it, and if so, what? Um, so now you're getting well beyond my area of expertise. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things, but I'm largely going to punt. Um, and, and that's to say that I don't know if the state has a particularly good record at regulating speech. Um, and it's not clear to me right now um, that the people who have concerns about corporate regulation of speech would fare any better in a Kamala Harris administration. Um, that the speech that is being regulated um, by, supposedly being regulated by media companies would be the same exact speech that would be regulated um, by the people who go under the banner of social justice warriors. Uh, and so it's not clear to me that this is um, the best bet. It, stri it strikes me, in, in, and I have an essay coming out in the next issue of National Affairs with uh, one of the Heritage board members, Robbie George, where we say that actually a free marketplace in ideas uh, actually seems to have um, been a, uh, a proven track record of allowing us to best grapple with arguments. Right? And so the limits that you would want to place on speech wouldn't be, I don't like your viewpoint, but it would actually have to be something like slander, uh, fighting words, uh, incitement to violence, right? Actual like speech acts that are in and of themselves unjust or immoral, but not your viewpoint is offensive or your viewpoint um, is wrong even, right? Some people said we should just censor speech based on whether it's right or wrong, whether it's true or false, whether it's hurtful or not. 
all of that seems to stifle the exchange of ideas and of arguments and lead to um, codify kind of orthodoxy. Um, and I don't see any reason to think um, that fallen human beings who exercise political power would be any better at adjudicating these debates than fallen human beings who adjudicate corporate power. Um, yeah. Yes, down here in the blue, blue dress. Hi, my name's Janice. Um, question, it seems like... Um, you want to defend social justice going back to the history, but given our culture and how the word is used now, it's more associated with socialism leading to communism, so we have to deal with what is. And um, given that God is the ultimate judge and he has uh, extensive information on justice in his word, would we not go to that first and then go to policy from there? Yeah, great questions. Um so, I mean, you're, you're right that one of the challenges here is, has the phrase social justice been so um, corrupted that it's irredeemable? Um, that that the, the popular understanding of what the word means um, is entirely turned upside down, that we're better off just using a different phrase, like, like common good or something like that. And I just don't know. Um, I mean, that's going to be a question for people who do kind of like focus groups and public opinion and campaigning advice. Um, I just want to at least let people know that there is this alternative history of the phrase and that to reject the contemporary usage of the phrase doesn't mean you have to give up on um, the idea, even if you are going to give up on the label, right? It may be that the label uh, isn't particularly uh, helpful. Maybe Teparelli was wrong and we should just go back to using general justice or legal justice. You know, he made a mistake by introducing the phrase social in front of justice. Um, to your second question, yeah, I am I, of the opinion that both faith and reason should influence um, all of our thinking when it comes to everything, right? And so that we shouldn't artificially kind of exclude certain sources of knowledge from our deliberations, whether that be uh, deliberations about private life or public life. Uh, and so I think um, revealed traditions and philosophical traditions and technical traditions should all be on the table when we're thinking about important issues like this. I think we might have time for one last question. Oh, and David wants a question. So we'll go right in the middle. Um, I think it's coming behind you. And then David's going to get the last one. So my name is Joseph. My question is, you seem to have an analysis of markets that it's based uh, in a utilitarian way of saying, look, it's lowered poverty. It's produced massive amounts of innovation. But I'm a little confused because you want to ground your account in a natural law approach. So how do you sort of reconcile those two conceptions? Sure. So, I mean, I don't think it's utilitarian to say that markets have um, produced human goods, human flourishing. A natural law um, uh, argument is about, you know, what are the various goods that make us flourish? Uh, how ought we to pursue those goods? You know, what's the telos? What's the end of man? Uh, what's conducive to man's nature that makes us flourish? What's not conducive? Um, and so the way that I was talking about how markets have produced those things, to my mind, is entirely in keeping with that. I don't think you have to think that any time you look at consequences, you're therefore a consequentialist. I think that's a mistake. Um, there is a way of looking at consequences, which is consequentialist, but there's also a way of looking at consequences, which is um, in keeping with Aristotelian, Thomistic, natural law thinking, um, especially when you're talking about policies and laws. Because how are we going to know which laws and policies are conducive to human flourishing without looking at what the fruits are, what the outcomes are? Right? We have to look at not just what in the abstract philosophically sounds to us like, oh, this would be a good law and a good policy. We actually have to look at, and then what does it produce? Uh, does it actually produce human flourishing or does it produce a human failing? And, and, and that's an important consideration for any uh, natural law account. David, last word. I have two, two related questions. Um, one is, how would you regard uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, specifically Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, which is a virtue ethics allied to, to your yep. point of view? And this, the second is, are there writers who have, you know, you talked a lot about Aquinas and, and uh, Aristotle. Are there more modern writers that writing in the natural law tradition, post-Enlightenment writers who address economic issues that you could direct people to? Sure. Great question. I can actually answer both with one name, and you've already had him speak here, but Sam Gregg has done some really good work um, on both of those questions. Um, and Sam wants to read some of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers 
um, in a in more in keeping with the kind of like great intellectual tradition rather than as a splinter group or as you know a great fissure. Uh, some people want to read Enlightenment thinkers as you know an utter break with what came before, uh, and others want to say, well, no, I mean, like, ideas develop, but it's not as if they were throwing everything um, away. There are important differences, I think, um, in a Humean or an Adam Smith approach. Um, from a more Aristotelian, but uh, I think there are also some deep similarities there. Um, how they understand it, I mean, it's a theory of sentiments rather than uh, purely a theory of reason. And so like where the starting points are, are going to be um, different. Um, but some of the humanistic considerations that I think someone like Adam Smith um, brings in, especially when you read both A Wealth of Nations and A Theory of Moral Sentiments, a lot of people only read the economic side, not the moral philosophy side of Smith. And then um, Greg in general, Sam, um, he was a doctoral student of John Finnis's at Oxford. Uh, he's now been at the Acton Institute for 20 years or so. Um, we'll, I'll actually be hosting him in the fall here at Heritage for his most recent book. He has a book titled um, Reason, Faith, and the Crisis of Civilization, which is a really nice book showing how you need both faith and reason and some of the insights of empiricism to produce a, a well-flourishing society. Uh, but Sam has a number, he probably has published 10 books now, um, trying to deploy and develop the natural law tradition as applied to economic questions. Um, and, and particularly to show that it's a false dichotomy if you think the only options are uh, liberalism or libertarianism. Um, lo- liberalism understood in kind of like left liberalism, not classical liberalism in that uh, distinction. That he, he wants to say there's there, there are these other ways of thinking about the foundations, but then also thinking about the morality um, so, okay, with that, we're out of time. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. I always walk off.